all creatures. Let's stand again together for our scripture reading in Acts, Acts chapter 11. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 920. Acts eleven nineteen to 30. Again, please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Teach us your ways, O Lord. May we, as your people, seek you with all of our hearts as you speak your words of truth and life to your servants. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we are going to be talking about onomastics or onomatology. Yes, glad I see a bunch of blank stares out there. Sam knows what this is? No, okay, he raised his hand. In confusion like everyone else. <laughs> Maybe a related word will help. Etymology. Onomastics or onomatology is the study of the etymology, the, the origin, history, and use of proper names. If you've ever done any genealogy work, in your family tree, you've no doubt come across these types of things, these types of discussions. A majority of my ancestry is from Norway, and the naming system in Norway is very complicated. Uh, the way people get their names, it can be based on uh, the father's 
line. Um, first son gets a certain type of name. Second son gets a certain type of name. First daughter gets a certain type of name. Very confusing. It can also be based on geography. Um, on my mom's side, the last name is Daman. I met some Norwegians actually when we were living in China, and I asked them about it, and they said, oh, Daman means pond in, in Norwegian. So, you know, the family probably lived near some pond, and that's where they got their name. It can also be related to occupation. Rodemaker, right? Talk about this. A lot of names, if your name ends in an ER, uh, probably has some type of connection to an occupation that someone in your family had a really long time ago. So my great-great-grandpa and others like him who arrived in the New World said, enough is enough. This is so confusing, we're going to just do this a different way. So my great-great-grandpa was Golak Golakson. And then they ended the confusion of naming. So, well, what on earth does this have to do with our texts here today in Acts 11? I'm glad you asked. There is a naming that goes on here. And while Luke doesn't really explain it, it's almost just in a passing comment, it is not insignificant. The identity of God's people throughout the scriptures is of great significance. We saw that in our Old Testament reading in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel concluded his prayer, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The naming, the identity of God's people is tied especially closely to God's very acting on their behalf. And we come to the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we've seen the following identifiers for followers of Jesus. We've seen these names. Disciples, saints, believers, brothers and sisters, witnesses, and followers of the way. And the new name that we are going to see today, Christians, is tied very closely, I believe, to what we have been seeing the Lord do in and through his new covenant people, the church. Now, if you're visiting with us or haven't been with us for the past few weeks, we've seen from chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 18, just before this, we've seen this retelling, we've seen it three times, of the events of Peter and Cornelius's corresponding visions and the visit of Peter and company to Cornelius and his house with his, those who were gathered there, his family and friends. And the significance that Luke is bringing out is that God makes no distinctions he makes no distinction, distinctions ethnically, culturally, or linguistically between Jews and Gentiles. We saw last week the report of Peter and company to the church in Jerusalem. You can look back at verses 17 and 18. Peter said to the church in Jerusalem, those who were gathered, questioning him why he ate with these Gentiles. He said, if God then gave the same gift to them, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
This is a seismic shift in the life of the church. It's a seismic shift really in all of redemptive history. The emphasis is that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has now been broken down. We've seen that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 18, says, For through him, Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's writing here to the church in Ephesus, to Gentile believers. He says to them, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is an earth-shattering declaration and, and realization that began to take place here in these chapters here in Acts. And what I want us to see today, and what I believe Luke is highlighting, is how the movement of the gospel has both created and defined a new people. Remember that the movement of the gospel has been both geographic, kind of one of our summary statements in Acts, Acts 1.8, the promise that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, right? That's the center circle. And then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. The gospel will kind of go out in these concentric circles to the end of the earth. There's been a geographic emphasis. And now we're seeing this ethno-linguistic movement, right? The gospel's going beyond just Hebrew-speaking Jews. It's going to these Gentiles, and this is going to have massive implications for the world, really. This movement of the gospel has caused, and it will continue to cause, a stir wherever it goes. And we want to see how this is just as true today as it was in the first century. So let's dive in. First, we see that we are those to whom the gospel has come. We are those to whom the gospel has come. We see this in verses 19 through 21. Luke begins by taking us back to the beginning of chapter 8, connecting us there. After the stoning of Stephen, before Philip preached in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch, and before Saul's conversion, we're told at the beginning of chapter 8 that great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem so that they were scattered and went abroad preaching the word. So Saul's plan to squash the movement of Jesus followers backfired. And now we, found, we find that in their scattering here, verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, which is going up the eastern coast of the, or the, the western, no, eastern, eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, through Phoenicia, which is the cities of Tyre and Sidon, then north of, they're, they're going now north of Samaria, so they're getting out of Samaria toward the end of the earth. Then they go farther north, all the way to Antioch, which is on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, it's kind of a, a big oval shape, kind of running east and west. So that, that northeast corner there is where Antioch is. Then to the island of Cyprus, that's a pretty good-sized island there in the Mediterranean Sea. That island is about 50 miles south of modern-day Turkey and about 65 miles west of modern-day Syria. And notice what Luke highlights then in terms of their evangelism at the end 
of verse 19, and then pay attention to the but in verse 20. It says that they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. So in all these geographic locations, there were Jews present. The Jews had spread far and wide. They were in these different places where there were both Jews and Gentiles living there. But those who went out from the scattering after Stephen's death were preaching only to Jews. And then we see, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now we've seen this description Hellenists before. It occurs three times in Acts. The first time is in Acts 6, 1, where the Hellenist widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. We saw there that these are clearly Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. These are people who are believers in Jesus, these widows. So that's the first distinction of Hellenists. Then in chapter 9, verse 29, after Saul's conversion, he went to Jerusalem where he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So these are Greek-speaking Jews. They're not Christians, but they are Greek-speaking Jews, so that word Hellenist is used for them. Now here in 1120, these Hellenists are simply Greeks. They are pagan Gentiles. If you, you, There's a footnote there in the ESV that says that, that it's Greeks, non-Jews. They are pagan Gentiles to whom these scattered Christians have come in order that they might preach the good news about Jesus. They have not gone as far as they could, literally to the end of the earth, but they are beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and they are now in that end of the earth territory. And again, notice their message here. What are, their, what are they preaching? It says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. That is shorthand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the message is a person. If someone asks you, what is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, you have it right here. Islam doesn't preach Muhammad. Buddhism doesn't preach Buddha. Mormonism doesn't preach Joseph Smith because none of them can save, and they know that. We preach Jesus. Paul describes this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. He tells them that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That covers everybody, right? The Jews to whom the Messiah was to come, and Gentiles means everybody else. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. That's what we preach, Paul says. We preach Jesus crucified. And people aren't going to like it. They're going to trip over it. They're going to say, that's ridiculous. How can you believe a story about a man who died on a cross to forgive the sins of the world? What else might we say about being recipients of the gospel? 
What did it look like for these pagan Gentiles in the first century? And what does it still look like today? Let's not forget the truth of what is needed for anyone to turn to the Lord, regardless of the place or time of their birth or upbringing. We see how the Lord was at work here in verse 21 and in the second half of verse 24. Look at verse 21 with me. And the hand of the Lord was with them, those who are preaching the Lord Jesus, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Look at the second sentence in verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, we might think of Paul's reminder to the Corinthians. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2, he, sa- he writes this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Remember, the Greeks demand wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that, don't miss this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says the Greeks want wisdom. They want this flowery speech. They want eloquence. He says that's, that's not what we're here to offer. We're here to bring the power of God through the message of a crucified Savior. That's where the power comes. Luke makes this same thing clear here. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I love what John Stott says about this. He says, when we see the Lord adding to the Lord, so that he is both subject and object, source and goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. Let me read that again. When we see the Lord adding to the Lord, so that he is both subject and object, source and goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. Let that sink in for a moment. I've seen this. I've been guilty of this. We can plan and strategize. I was there in 2010 at our crew conference in Thailand when we unveiled our North Star vision, when by 2020 we were going to send millions of missionaries out from China to the rest of the world. We were going to plant movements all over. We were going to see churches planted. We were going to do all these amazing things. And you know what happened in 2020? COVID. Lockdown. Chinese New Year, all of the staff are in Thailand and the borders get shut and most of them still have not returned. But you know what God is doing? What God always does. Turning people to himself by himself. Now of course he uses human agents but God is not dependent upon our planning and our wisdom. 
Got an email recently from a sister who, uh, her and her family served in the same city we were in, in Kunming. Uh, she was in Thailand for a conference and she was able to actually go back to Kunming. And you know what is happening? The work is carrying on. She got to meet with a whole bunch of believers who they worked with when they were college students. These students are still walking with the Lord. They're still trusting him. They're still involved in their churches and they're still seeing God at work. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, there's no need to be doing foreign missions, right? That there's no need for foreign missionaries to be supporting in places like China. There still is a massive need. The church in the West has been ridiculously blessed with resources, and we must be generous. We must be open-handed with the things that God has given us. We're going to see an example of that at the end of our passage. Remember, we are the end of the earth. We talked about this in the beginning. America is not the hub from which world missions goes out. We are the end of the earth that has been reached with the gospel, right? And there's still end of the earth beyond us. There's still unreached people groups. We must continue to give freely what we have received freely. But it's not enough to just receive it. It's not enough to say that we've turned to the Lord and now we can just chill and go about our lives. Something must happen in response to what God has done for us. So next we see that we are those who the gospel has gone deep into. We are those who the gospel has gone deep into. Ethan pointed out last week how news travels fast. Even in those days, without modern technology, it traveled relatively quickly. So we see that here in verse 22, that the report about God's work in Antioch made it back to Jerusalem. That is 300 miles. It'd be 15 days of traveling an average of 20 miles per day. Here to Minneapolis, if you go through La Crosse, is just over 300 miles. Imagine making that trip, even on a donkey, right? It'd be a long trip. Imagine doing that on foot. That was the, the urgency to communicate what God was doing. So the church in Jerusalem here chooses Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who we were introduced to back in chapter four, Remember that Barnabas is the one who sold a field and he gave everything, he gave all of the proceeds to the church. He brought it and laid the money at the feet of the apostles. And Barnabas there is the foil for the account that follows when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Lord and they keep back a share of the money from the property that they sold and they are put to death for it. Barnabas, as we see in verse 24, is a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. If you remember, this is the same description that was used of Stephen in chapter 6, verse 5. This is no doubt intentional by Luke. Barnabas was also a native of Cyprus. So culturally and linguistically, he was the right man for this job. Notice what he did upon his arrival in Antioch in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted, I wish the ESV would have translated this as encouraged because it's the same word 
that he is called son of encouragement. So he encouraged here them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, truly living up to his name then. While he was the right man for the job, he realized that he wasn't the only man for the job. So he left Antioch and he went to Tarsus, a hundred miles away, still quite a journey, to find Saul, where Saul had been for the last seven or eight years, since his conversion and his escape from Jerusalem when the Jews were seeking to kill him. Barnabas and Saul then come back to Antioch and they stay there for a whole year, meeting with the church and teaching the people. Paul was the right man for this job. He was the one who had been schooled in the scriptures. He had spent a whole bunch of time preparing for this ministry. Look, whether we like it or not, being a Christian is about knowing stuff. It's about learning and being taught. We should celebrate that. When Jesus was asked by one of the scribes in Mark 12 about which was the greatest commandment, Jesus quoted the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It is a holistic approach. The gospel going deep into us as it did with the believers here in Antioch. It must begin with changed hearts. We must turn to the Lord and our heart allegiances must be transformed. But we don't stop there. It's not enough to just say we believe. Our minds must be transformed as well. And that comes through learning, through good teaching, through reading. And we should love good doctrine. We should love our creeds and our confessions and our catechisms because they help us to love God with all of our minds. Now our world around us seeks to indoctrinate us, doesn't it? Through advertising, sometimes subtle messaging and sometimes very much not so subtle messaging. And it's kind of funny here, isn't it? The, The irony that we see. People love to criticize the church for indoctrinating people. Well, words do have meaning, and sometimes usages of words change, and that's fine. But if you look up the word indoctrinate in the dictionary under the archaic explanation, it says, teach or instruct someone. Right? The the original meaning of the word was just to, to learn something, to learn doctrine, to learn teaching. To indoctrinate someone was a good thing. Now the the new definition is to teach a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. That's where we get the, the criticism of indoctrinating people, right? Like people don't think for themselves. You're all just a bunch of sheep, you Christians, right? Just going about saying whatever your, your pastors or your leaders say. Well, maybe that happens, but that's not what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to indoctrinate you in the things of God and say, go read these things. Go think for yourselves. Go pray about this. Go seek the Lord. Don't just listen to what I have to say about it. It's not why you're here today, to just hear a a message, right? To be entertained. If you're here to be entertained in preaching, I'm sorry, you're probably in the wrong place. 
Um, you can find that on YouTube or in other places around here. And I know that's not why you're here. But that criticism is, is ridiculous at the end of the day. But look what God is doing here in Antioch. He sent Barnabas, the native Cyprian, who spoke the language, who understood the culture, and Saul, the converted radical Jew, who is now the apostle to the Gentiles, and they are going to spend time with these believers in Antioch, laboring for a year to indoctrinate them in the Christian faith. And clearly the Lord was at work here in marvelous ways. These people's hearts and minds were being transformed. Their lives were looking so different. They were becoming so set apart that they even took on a new name, Christians. Christians, literally, the Christ people. Now there's a whole bunch of debate about this among scholars. I think a lot of it is, is speculative, whether or not this name was given to them by other people or whether they began calling themselves this name. There's a, maybe a little bit of a hint in the word that they were called, that it was given to them. We can't know that for sure. If it was from others, the question also is whether or not this was a term of ridicule or derision. We also don't really know that. Um, so I think it's best not to speculate. I think it's best to just work with the information that we have here. But if you see your worship guide, I did title this sermon, Who Are You People? Uh, assuming that it was a name given by the observers of the Christian movement who saw these followers of Jesus living and loving like Christ and therefore called them Christ people. Um, is Donovan? Donovan's here, yeah. I took a screenshot of my notes from this week that I did earlier on in the week when I came up with this sermon title, alongside of a page from F.F. Bruce's commentary, which I read yesterday, and I sent it to James and Donovan to prove that I did not steal this title. I don't think they believed me, um, but I promise you this sermon title was original. Who are you people? Well, here, F.F. Bruce's guess as to how we as Christians got our name, this is the imaginary conversation that he has, says was going on. Who are these people? One Antiochian would ask another. As two or three unofficial missionaries gathered a knot of more or less interested hearers and disputants around them in one of the city colonnades, Oh, these are the people who are always talking about Christos, the Christ people, the Christians. And so it was in Antioch, says Luke, that the followers of Jesus first came to be popularly known as Christians. I like that. I also like that this is a new name and that it's given here in Antioch, in the place where Jews and Gentiles have been converted to Christ and are together in newfound unity, living out the reality that the dividing wall that stood between them for thousands of years has now been torn down through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The terms believer, disciple, saint, and follower are all in a sense a little bit generic. They could refer to Jews. And as we've seen, the term Hellenist was also confusing. There is no confusion in this new name, Christian. We are the people of Christ, the one whom the prophets foretold, 
The one who fulfilled the holy Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. And we are to follow him and be like him. I love how Heidelberg Catechism 32 addresses this. You saw it in our affirmation of faith. It's also in the front of your worship guides. Why are you called a Christian? Answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name. As priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Now you might read this and this might sound a little confusing, this answer that we identifying as prophets, priests, and kings. In the summer of 2022, I think it was, um, no, maybe 2021, well, a couple, some, few, two or three summers ago, either way, uh, we did our, our sermon series on prophet, priest, and king. We looked at the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. We looked at how Jesus fulfills each of those roles as prophet, priest, and king. And then we looked at how the church, how we as believers operate in those roles of prophet, priest, and king. So it's not wrong for us, it's not wrong for the Heidelberg Catechism here to identify us in those terms operating in a, a prophet, priest, and king type role. The beauty of this is that Jesus was no distant religious leader. What's even more glorious is that he, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and became like us, yet without sin, that we might be saved from sin and death and that, what, that we might become more and more like him. We should seek to know him more as our prophet, priest, and king, and, and know what it looks like for us to seek him in these ways as prophets, priests, and kings. We seek to do that, as Heidelberg Catechism 32 says, in those ways with hearts and minds transformed by him. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you are one, you know this, you've experienced it. And maybe this Growth and intimacy with the Lord is currently lacking in your life. And to you I say, return. Return to your first love. By grace. Just as you were saved by grace. By grace, return to your Lord and Savior. And maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. You've heard the gospel. You know what God requires of you. Faith in Jesus and repentance from your sins but you would rather go your own way. To you I say, don't do it. Don't continue on in your sin. Don't try to walk your own path. It will lead only to destruction. Become a Christian today. Trust in Jesus, turn from your sin and turn to him in faith and live for the glory of God. We've seen that we are those to whom the gospel has come, and we are those who the gospel has gone deep into. Finally, we see that we are those from whom the gospel has gone out. We are those from whom the gospel has gone out. If you know me, you know that I love to talk about the head, heart, and hands elements of the Christian life. 
We've seen the head and the heart emphasized up until this point. Now we see the hands. What we might in our Christian jargon call being the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. Verses 27 to 30 describe how a prophet named Agabus went from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell them about a famine that was going to come over all the world. Now this word here, all the world, doesn't literally mean there was a, a complete worldwide famine. It means the, the whole Roman world at that time. Uh, and there are historical records of different famines that were going on during this time. But notice what we see here that Agabus foretold this by the Spirit. This wasn't like the modern day claim of our so-called modern day prophets who say things like, well, I feel like God is telling me something, you know, and it's like you don't know whether it's their indigestion speaking or something else. This is a clear message from the Lord. The Christians in Antioch recognize this and they respond accordingly. Look at verses 29 and 30. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Do you know what's amazing about this? This is evidence of the unity of the church, of the wall between Jew and Gentile being broken down in Christ. The Christians in Antioch send relief to the Christians in Jerusalem. Two groups of believers in Jesus who had been geographically, culturally, ethnically, and linguistically divided. They are now forever bound together in mutual love and appreciation as God sovereignly works through a famine. This should totally blow our minds. It's so easy to just read these passages, to skim over these things, and to take for granted how earth-shattering this really is. I'll bring it back to my introduction. You thought I was going to bore you to death talking about onomatology. And now God has blown our minds by his word and his spirit because we've seen the origin of our name and why it's important. We are Christians, Christ people. Praise be to Christ. And by the grace of God, we will seek to show the same unity that we see that our brothers and sisters here in Antioch and Jerusalem exhibited 200 centuries ago. We think that the Bible doesn't apply to us today, that these things have no application for us today. Think again. I think this is a pretty amazing place for us to conclude as we transition to the Lord's Supper. This table that we are about to come to is all about unity. It's all about coming freely by the grace of God and not because of what we bring to the table, to use the common phrase. We don't bring our ethnic or linguistic or cultural merits to the table. We simply come as Christians, those for whom Christ's body was broken and his blood poured out. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper 
Matthew tells us, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a pointing forward here by Jesus. There is a foretaste of the day when saints from every nation, tribe, people, and language, the fulfillment of what is beginning here in Acts 8, 9, 10, and 11, the day when saints from every nation and tribe and people and language will stand before the throne and before the Lamb and cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What we do now, what we do here and now points us to what we will do then. This is why we fence the table, as we say. This is why we make a distinction between those who come to this table and those who do not come to this table. There will be a distinction made on that day between those who belong to Christ and those who do not belong to Christ. You are either a Christian or you are not a Christian. Those are the only two options. This doesn't mean that you're not welcome here if you're not yet a Christian. We're so glad you're here. We're glad you're here to worship with us, but this table is a dividing marker. It's a dividing marker that points you to your need for Christ. If you are a Christian, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. His body being broken, his blood being poured out, that you might have new life. If you are not yet a Christian, it's a reminder that you need to be. You need to trust Christ. You need to trust Christ before you come to this table. But again, this is a reminder that it's not about status. It's not about ethnicity. The question is, are you a Christian? Do you belong to the Christ people? If so, then you are welcome to come to this table, to take the elements, to eat and remember what God has done for us in Christ. And if you are not yet there, we would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to put your faith in Jesus, to turn from your sins, to trust in him. So please talk to me if that's you. Those who are serving, if you could come down at this time.